Thanks for tuning in to the Lake Forest Church Podcast. Lake Forest is a community for people who have given up on church, but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our churches in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lakeforest.org. We're continuing today in our series, What Child Is This?, our Advent series, and I wanted to start with this question. Have you ever had a moment in your life that was just so embarrassing, so humiliating, so paralyzing that all you wanted to do was crawl into a hole and never come out. Anybody ever had that kind of moment? A couple of you guys? All right. The rest of you are liars. That's all right. No, I'm just kidding. I want to tell you about a moment like that for me. It was in sixth grade. Uh, I was uh, in, it was a Friday, and I was in my math class with Mrs. Jensen. And uh, my math class was the last class of the day. And I was I was doing pretty good in math in sixth grade, and this particular Friday we had a test, and uh, I, I sat in the back row in one of those horrible, y'all remember those horrible high school seats with the hard plastic and the wood? I think they, they built them in the 1800s, and they still use them today. Something, yeah, anyway, you know the chairs. So I'm sitting in the back, and I'm, I'm cranking on my test, and, and I fin- I'm the first to finish. So I, I'm so proud of this moment. So I get up, and I walk all the way forward, and I put the test on the teacher's desk, turn around, go back to my chair. And I sit down, and I cross my arms, and I'm, I'm kind of laying back, and I'm, I'm feeling pretty good, you know? I'm feeling like my weekend's here, like I killed that test, slayed it, you know? So then I close my eyes, and before I know it, I kind of doze off, and I'm like, I'm asleep. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I hear this loud, thunderous sound, uh, the sound that kind of like of exploding air against a plastic seat, if you can kind of imagine that kind of sound. And I uh, suddenly come awake. I'm like, what was that? And I, I look around and all faces are looking at me. And I realized the sound had come from somewhere between my body and the seat that I was sitting on. The laughter began as a trickle and just grew into this loud roar. And then Mrs. Jensen, as mad as could be, I mean, her face was just red, right? Because this is the middle of the test. She calls me up to her desk. She writes me a note, and she sends me to the nurse saying, quote, Aaron, if you can't control your bodily functions, there's something wrong with you. So talk about the walk of shame. I mean, I had to walk to the nurse. The nurse is like, what are you doing here? I said, well... She said, wow, I've never had that one before. <laughs> so I sat in the nurse's office that day, just, just figure out how I would never have to show my face again, right? Like, how I'm, I'm never going back to class. I'm not coming to school on Monday, right? I'm probably going to have to run away and join the circus. That was my plan as a sixth grader. Such is the power of shame in our lives, right? Shame's a powerful, powerful force. What do you do with shame in your life? I mean, what do you do with it? Because the truth is, you know, we all have, we've all got some stuff, right? I mean, let's just be honest here. We're, we're Lake Forest Church. We don't pretend on this. We're not pretending to be better. We've all got some stuff in our lives, stuff in our past, stuff that we regret, stuff that, man, sometimes like, I hope no one ever finds out this about me, right? We, we've all got that feeling. And so we live with this kind of shame that was just, it's like this thing on our back and we don't know what to do with it. And, and we just try to hide it, or we try to ignore it, or we try to stuff it. And then every now and then it just creeps up again and totally, totally paralyzes us. One of the famous researchers on shame in our world today is a woman named Dr. Brene Brown. Some of you might know Brene Brown from her TED Talks. 
uh, and she is a leading expert on the study of shame. I found this so interesting. Uh, she said, in all of the decades of studying shame, here's what she's found in our culture. She says, our culture actually doesn't know how to cope with shame. We, we don't have any mechanisms for coping with shame. She said, part of the problem is that in our culture today, we only know how to tell stories of success or to tell stories of perfection. And so when our lies, which they inevitably do, do not measure up, there is this gap. And she calls that gap shame. And we don't know what to do with that feeling. In fact, she says we can often get stuck in a shame cycle. It goes like this. There's something in your life that you're embarrassed or ashamed of. And so you, you withdraw from people, right? That's kind of what shame does. We hide. That leads into a kind of depression, which leads to more shame, which causes us to withdraw and get more depressed and more shamed. And on and on we go and we find ourselves stuck. So the question I want to ask today, for those of you who might be experiencing shame in your life now or will one day experience it again, what is our option? When it comes to shame, is there a door number two? Is there a way out of this cycle? Or are we forever doomed to just carry the shame with us, hiding, pretending, covering up, and isolating? Well, what I want to suggest today is that the scriptures offer a unique opportunity, a unique hope for those of us who want to find freedom from our shame. And it comes in one of the most surprising stories of all the gospels. We've been in this series, uh, What Child Is This? And in this series, we've been looking at the Gospel of John. Let me tell you just quickly about John. Uh, The Christmas story is in all of the Gospels, but John is a little bit unique. Matthew and Luke, they want to tell us the details. Who said what to whom? When was this baby born? Who came to visit? And this, that, the other. John, he doesn't give us any of that. Instead, John just wants to answer the question, why did this child come and who is he? In fact, John's entire gospel can be understood as being shaped around seven I am statements. Seven statements that Jesus made about his own identity. Rachel talked to us last week about the time Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. That's one of the I am statements from John. Two weeks ago, I told you about the statement, I am the good shepherd. Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd, another I am statement. Today, I want to look at this I am statement from John chapter 8 that goes like this. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Now, you might be familiar with this I am statement. Even if you're not a Bible person, even if you're not a church person, you've probably heard these words before. In fact, you've probably seen these words on a Christmas card or saying them in a Christmas carol, but you may have never stopped to notice the context in which this statement happens. You see, in John's gospel, each I am statement has a corresponding story or miracle. And here's how this works. The story is told, and then Jesus makes the I am statement. And the two go together. They actually help interpret one another. So what story do you suppose goes with this I am statement? I am the light of the world. Any guesses? That's right. It's the woman caught in adultery. What? What does the woman caught in adultery have to do with this story of Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. Well, what I want to show you today is that this woman 
who was in fact in a kind of darkness and dragged quite against her will into the light, has a lot to teach us about what Jesus means when he says, I am the light of the world. And what I want to do is I want to break down this woman's story into three parts. For those of you who are taking notes, these are going to be the three parts today. We're going to talk first about the law. What is the law? We're going to talk secondly about the love. And third, about the light. How do you like that? That's old school Baptist right there. Three L's? Come on. Do I, do I get bonus points for that today? That's, I should get bonus points. That's good. The law, the love, the light. So if you fall asleep in the middle uh, and you wake back up or on light, you'll know we're in the third period for all the hockey fans. Here we go. So let's start with the law. G, uh, this is Jesus in chapter 8 of John's gospel. Let me read this to you. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of, here it is, the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act, just imagine this for a minute, caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Wow. Now what do you, Jesus, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, I just love this scene. This is not at all your Sunday school Jesus story, right? This is, this is, no, this is, this is above, uh, this is PG-13 for sure. Uh, you know, Jesus had a reputation in his life. Here's what's Jesus' reputation. He was known for being a friend of sinners, right? Jesus hung out with the wrong crowds, and this drove the religious leaders nuts. They hated it, right? So they're looking for this moment where they, where they could trap Jesus, and they find this woman caught in adultery. They drag her out. We have no idea what state or condition or clothing she's even been able to muster together. She's, this is this horrific moment. And these guys say, this is our chance. Because the law of Moses requires stoning. And so, and so if Jesus goes soft on this woman, if he goes easy on her, we'll know that Jesus is soft on sin. But... But if he goes hard on her, then we'll know that he actually, he actually values the law of God and, and we'll finally out him for all this pretending to like sinner stuff. Right? They thought Jesus can either love sinners or he can love the law, but he cannot possibly love both. The only problem for these religious leaders is they didn't know, but Jesus doesn't like it when we try to put him in our nice, neat little boxes, does he? And we see this in what happens next. Jesus responds. And actually, by the way, I need to mention something here. You know, part of the challenge on this is the, the Pharisees, these religious guys, wanted Jesus to be all truth or all grace. And uh, what we find in the beginning of John's Gospels, he reminds us that Jesus is full of truth and grace. He is not half truth and half grace. He is all truth and all grace. And we see this in what Jesus does next. Look with me at the next verse. So the Pharisees are pressing and they say, Jesus, what do you say? And he says nothing. He's silent. He literally ghosts these guys, right? And then the Bible says the strangest thing. It says Jesus bends down and he starts writing in the dirt. Awkward? A little bit? Now, this is kind of interesting. 
Scholars for centuries have debated what Jesus was actually writing in the dirt. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us. There are different theories. Some think he's writing the Ten Commandments. That would kind of make sense, right? Others think he was writing the names of the religious leaders because he's about to, boop, yeah, they're about to get theirs, right? I personally think he was writing Kanye lyrics because he's a big Jesus is King fan. But, uh, you know, <laughs> the truth is we don't know. We don't know what he was writing. But that's not the point. What was Jesus doing when he knelt down? He was shielding the woman from her shame. Right? Think about this. Here's this woman caught in the act. She's dragged in front. We don't know. I mean, just, right? And Jesus does the strangest thing. But in doing the strangest thing, it's as if he draws all of the spotlight that was on the woman. And he pulls all of the spotlight onto himself, creating a little shelter for the woman from all the shame and the storm. It's kind of interesting. I don't actually have this in the notes. I wish I could put it up on the screen. But you know the Hebrew word for welcome actually means, means to, to shield in a corner, to protect. That's what it means to welcome someone. And in a way, Jesus is welcoming this sinner by the single act of protecting her. I was thinking about this. I, I just kind of wonder, uh, what if the church could be known as that kind of welcoming place? I mean, can you imagine if churches, I talked to somebody uh, after the first service, they said, man, Aaron, I grew up in a church where like you went to church, church was like, they were like the professionals at shaming, right? That's what church was. But what if the church could be known as the most welcoming, the safest place for broken, wounded people? Can you imagine? Well, getting back to the story, I want you to notice something here. Does Jesus think that the law doesn't matter? No. Does Jesus think, oh, it's no big deal, adultery, don't worry about it, you know, we're good? No. See, Jesus is still caring about the law. He's just not concerned about the punishment of the law. He's focused on the purpose of the law. Paul tells us this, that the law was given to reveal our guilt. That's why the law was given. The law was given to reveal our guilt. You see, that's the law's purpose. Jesus shields her from her shame, but he does not shield her from her guilt. And here's why. Because if we don't understand our guilt, don't miss this, if we don't understand our guilt, we will never understand our need for a Savior. The law reveals our guilt, which helps us understand our need for a Savior. That's the first thing we see in this, in this story. But the story goes on. When they kept on questioning him, the Bible tells us that Jesus straightened up. What's actually happening here? Well, we need to remember kind of some of the things that upset Jesus. In fact, one of the things that really teased Jesus off more than anything is when vulnerable people are taken advantage of. That really gets under Jesus high. And that's exactly what's happening here. Remember, the law actually required that both the man and the woman be stoned, but these guys have dragged only the woman. This woman is in her most vulnerable, her most weak. She is utterly powerless. So what does Jesus do? He stands up to her accusers, defending her and protecting her. And then what Jesus does next is just so funny to me. 
It's as if he says, okay, guys, I get it. You want to stone her. I get it. I get it. I'm totally fine. That's right. Hey, uh, just one little quick thing. And you can almost hear Jesus chuckle here. Hey, but just before we get to the stoning, one little quick thing. Go ahead. Just make sure before you throw your stone, just, just make sure you don't have any guilt. Right? Just, just, make sure, just make sure there's no sin in your life. Then, then go ahead. Throw, throw this one. Just make sure there's nothing you're hiding. And, and then go ahead and stone her, right? And y'all, this is just crazy. Because in this single act of Jesus, he utterly levels the playing field. He exposes the exposers for being sinners just like this woman. Now, I think Jesus is, he's smart. He's smarter than, well, he's onto this shame stuff way before Brene Brown was. But, but Jesus knows how we are as people. He does. And he knows that one of our best shame coping mechanisms is to, well, when we feel ashamed, all we have to do is find somebody else that we can point the finger at to feel a little bit better about ourselves, right? I call this the, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so game. Any other players out there like me? You see, when we don't know what to do with our shame, when we don't know what to do with our own hiding, our own failings, that we don't measure up, we focus on someone else's shame so that we can feel just a little bit better about ourselves. Well, at least I'm not as bad as him. Oh, man, did you hear what she did? I can't believe she actually, well, my kids would never. And the problem is, the problem with this shame game problem is it works for a moment, doesn't it? That's the problem. That's why we keep doing it. It gives us just a little ounce of relief, but then just as quickly as that relief came, it disappears because it doesn't deal with the root of our own shame. It simply points out the shame of another. And what Jesus knows is that there is absolutely no difference between these religious leaders and this woman. In fact, the only difference, the only difference is that she got caught and they didn't. She's been exposed, but they're still hiding. And it might not be adultery. It might be their business dealings. It might be how they treat their families when they get home. It might be about secret habits in their lives. It could be anything. But the truth is, each and every one of them is guilty. And each and every one is carrying shame. So then Jesus does the unthinkable in the next act. Just as he had gotten down and drawn in the dirt with the woman, look at how he responds to the Pharisees. He gets down again, and he starts drawing. Now, what's he doing? He's showing the same exact kindness and compassion to the religious leaders that he did to the woman. In other words, Jesus' compassion, Jesus' love, Jesus' forgiveness, Jesus' grace is just as sufficient for adulterers as it is for self-righteous religious people. Can I get an amen? <laughs> right? And that's good news for us because some of y'all, that's us, right? Self-righteous. We're, we're playing the shame game. But Jesus says, look, we're all in the same boat. Let's just be honest. And my compassion and grace and love is available to you. First thing, first thing, the law of God does what? Try again. The law of God does what? Reveals our guilt. Good. The second thing, this, the love of God reveals his 
grace, reveals his grace. And that's exactly what happens next. One by one, the accusers begin dropping their stones. And I just love, can you imagine that scene? All these, they just, man, just a few words from Jesus pierce the hearts and they're like, oh man, I'm so busted, that's so me. And they just start dropping their stones. And one by one, they just start walking away until no one is left except Jesus and this woman. And the most incredible conversation happens next. Jesus looks at this woman and he asks her this question. He says, woman, who here condemns you? Who here condemns you? Can you hear the grace in that question? Who here condemns you? And then the woman kind of in this moment, I almost imagine just this moment of courage, she just kind of, well, no one, sir. And then Jesus looks her in the eyes and says, then neither do I condemn you. The most grace-filled, most love-laced, most powerful words in the history of the world, Jesus looks into her and says, then neither do I condemn you. And i got to just wonder, it's a heavy subject today, not exactly a feel-good Christmas message, but i got to wonder if there's somebody who came today who's carrying just a little bit of darkness or a little bit of shame. When you came in and you're thinking, you know, I, I don't even belong, I'm not even sure I fit in here. And you came in, and this word was just for you this morning, that when you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. There isn't. Doesn't matter how dark your darkness, doesn't matter how, how dark your past. In Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. But there's something else that I think Jesus is doing with this woman in this scene. Because when he asks her, woman, is there anyone here who condemns you? Who, who's present? Help me out here. Who's present in that moment? Two of them, right? Yeah, Jesus. This is like one time the answer at church is, like, who's present? Jesus. Okay, Jesus is there. We know that, yeah. And who else is present? The woman. So when he asks, woman, who else condemns you? If he doesn't condemn her, who's the only other option? Herself. You see what Jesus is doing here? You see, Jesus knows that more powerful than any of the stones that those religious leaders held is the stone that this woman has been using to shame and punish herself her whole life. And sometimes the hardest stones to let go of are those. You see, Jesus, Jesus is inviting this woman not just to believe that she can be forgiven, but to allow that forgiveness to penetrate her own soul and her own heart. Again, Brene Brown points out that part of our struggle with this is that we have conflated guilt and shame in our world. Guilt, guilt says this. Guilt says, I made a mistake. I did something wrong. That, that is guilt. Shame says, I am a mistake. Do you see the difference? A lot of us grew up in homes where parents didn't know the difference between shame and guilt. And the language they used with us gave us a shame identity. Oh, Aaron, you're such a screw-up. Aaron, you try as you you're never gonna. Aaron, why do you always? Aaron, you'd never. Aaron, why can't you be more like your sister? Why can't you be more like your brother? And see, these words, these shame words, begin to find their way deep inside of us. 
And we carry around these stones that we use to just shame ourselves over and over, getting stuck in that cycle of shame. But the invitation of the scriptures, the invitation to you and me this morning, the invitation that he gave to this woman was an invitation to a new identity, one that is free of condemnation and free of shame. But in order to receive that new identity, in order to walk in that new identity, this woman will have to lay down the stone that she has been shaming herself with for so many years and trust that in Jesus there is no condemnation. Which brings us to our third and final part this morning. The law of God reveals our guilt. The love of God reveals his grace. And finally, the light of God frees us from shame. Now watch this, watch this, because this is really cool here. In verse 11, the previous verse to the I am statement, I just read it to you. Jesus ends that verse with this peculiar phrase I have never understood. He says, woman, uh, there is no condemnation, right? No condemnation. Then he says, now, go and leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. And when I read those words, I used to think, man, is Jesus like getting a jab in right before they leave? Like, why is this the last thing he says? This doesn't square up with the rest of the story. But it was only as I read the verse that comes next that I begin to understand Jesus was not scolding her. He was inviting her. Look at what the next verse says. Well, I've got to find it. How do you like that? We'll, we'll read it as soon as I find it here. We'll just put it up on the screen. There we go. Y'all have been saying, we see it. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. How often will people who follow Jesus walk in darkness? Never, never. You see, Jesus is inviting her to leave the life of shame and instead experience the light of life. In essence, he says, you don't have to live in darkness anymore. You can be different. You don't have to hurt like you were hurting. You don't have to live in shame like you were living. You don't have to live in self-condemnation, self-hatred of your own bad decisions. You can be different now. Go and sin no more. Do you see the invitation? That's what it means to walk in the light of Jesus. And in the very same way today, in the grace and the presence of our good God, who is the light of the world, when you personalize this message to you, when this becomes your story, he is no longer just the light of the world. He becomes the light of your world. He becomes the light of your life. And it doesn't matter how dark your world is. It doesn't matter how dark your past is. It doesn't matter how dark your shame is. There is no darkness in this world big enough to snuff out even the smallest flame of the smallest candle because the Bible is clear. Darkness never defeats light. And the good news, the good news is that when you believe that, when it becomes personal, he is not this out there other God. He becomes your God and your personal light. And when you know that, you receive the freedom from all the voices of condemnation, the voices of the accuser in our life that says you can't, you won't, you will never. Those voices are silenced in the grace and goodness of our Lord who says, I am the light of the world. So how do we experience that? How do we do that? Well, I want to end our time by just sharing with you two ways that I have learned to practice this in my own life. And the first is simply this. 
When I was in my early 20s, I had had a time where just my life had not been going the way I'd wanted it to, and I was carrying a lot of shame and a lot of regret. And a friend told me about an exercise that he called a confession fire. So this is exactly what I did. I, I got some wood, and because I was in L.A., you had to buy it. There was no wood laying around anywhere. I went to the Home Depot and bought some firewood. And I bought, brought along with me my journal. I went to the uh, Huntington Beach. Huntington Beach has these really cool fire pits. And it was in the evening, and I sat down there, and I made my fire. And as the fire was kindling and beginning to flame up, I just started writing down all of my regrets, all of my shame, all the things that were haunting me that I just felt like, I was stuck in. After I could think of no more, and there were many, I simply prayed. I said, Jesus, I want to confess this to you. Would you take this shame and guilt from me? And I tore those pages out of the journal, and I placed them in the fire. And y'all, the power of watching that flame consume my sin was life-changing. And for some of y'all, You're like me. It just needs to be tactile, right? In fact, some of y'all may need to go home tonight and build a little fire. And you don't have to tell your family why you're doing it. You can lie to them and say you're making s'mores. Just make sure you write that lie on the journal before you burn burn, right? Or maybe you just want to find a quiet moment, you and God, and a candle. just, Just to watch as his flame of love consumes your guilt and your sin. Jesus took it on the cross. It's gone. If we will trust him for that. But the second thing is a more common practice, and that is just meeting with Jesus in prayer. Even since that time, uh, I've noticed changes in how I process shame in my journey with God. But sometimes, I don't know, maybe this is you too, sometimes those voices just seem to come out of nowhere. And as hard as I try to slough them off, I just can't. And so I have found great freedom in this simple act of prayer. I will come to Jesus And I will close my eyes and I will picture myself standing before him in the same way this woman stood before him. And I will will imagine my shame and all of that in my hands. And I'll look down at that. I know that all too well. It's nothing surprising there. But then I I will imagine myself looking up and looking in the face of Jesus the same way that woman did. And instead of condemnation, instead of a grimace, I see compassion and love and mercy. And I say, Jesus, would you take this shame from me? Truth be told, I probably pray that prayer once a month. Once a month. I come back. Jesus, I need to be reminded of my identity as your son. Would you help me be free from this shame and regret in my life? And I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now as we close. Would you bow your heads with me?